my wife, Ellie, and I just welcomed our third son into the world about a month ago. <clears throat> yep. So, uh, though he is our third son, he was our, our first pregnancy because our first two boys were adopted. And several weeks ago, Jake was talking in Matthew 24, you know, out of our Revelation series, Matthew 24, and he brought up birth pains. And I was like, whew, that's different. Like, that hits different now. And I'm just the guy, right? I'm like, my wife is like, yeah, you think it's different. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know more than me. Um, but I was actually really proud of myself in the labor and delivery room. Uh, I didn't pass out. Shocking. <laughs> Let's go. Um, and I actually did pass out when Ellie got her wisdom teeth out several years ago. So that was a shock. <clears throat> um, no, when I think about like child labor in this like birthing process, we have several friends that are either in the, in the process leading up to it or have just recently given birth. And I found there's kind of two camps that we land in when it comes to preparing for child labor. The first is you're afraid. And I'm like, maybe rightfully so, right? You've heard how painful it is, so here's what you do. You read all the books, listen to all the podcasts, you make all the flow charts for your birthing plan, and you're just like, we're going to just try and control this thing as best as we can because we're freaked out. The other side is ignorance. You're kind of just like, yep, it's coming at the end of January. We'll worry about it in the delivery room. And it's like, gang, there has to be a better way. <laughs> like, those are the two ditches. There has to be a better way. And as I even just think about this book of Revelation that we've been in now for several weeks, and we talk about the end times. And today specifically, talking about the devil and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast, I think those two ditches actually are present as we talk about end times and Revelation. It's like, on one hand, we have people that are afraid. They're like, this freaks me out. And I want to do all the research and do all the study. And I'm looking into all the theories and what could this be or what isn't this. And then the other side is just ignorance, sheer ignorance. It's like, I know that things are getting worse. I know it's all going to burn one day. I don't want to think about it. And I just got to say, Veritas, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. Because as Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, you know, the end times and the beginning of birth pains, he says it's the beginning of birth pains, which means it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as we jump into Revelation today, Revelation 12 and 13, we're actually going to get kind of this peeled back view of what's actually going on in the early church. And it's, it's not that there isn't physical suffering, because there is. There's intense physical suffering. We've seen in past weeks, like, more Christians are going to have to die for the name of Jesus. But what God allows John to see as we jump in today's text is that this is not just physical suffering. There is spiritual warfare happening. That's what's behind the scenes. What's actually going on is a spiritual battle. And so let me just ask you, when you think about suffering getting worse... Or when you think about spiritual warfare, what's your initial gut response? Fear? Ignorance? Or maybe somewhere in between? And I would, I would dare to say the majority of us land in one of the two ditches. And I want to say today there has to be a better way for us to approach suffering and spiritual warfare. So we're going to dig into Revelation 12. 
a ton of text today. I hope you have a physical Bible. Several things I want to kind of help us see and point out. <clears throat> but if you don't, we'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along with us. We're going to start Revelation 12, verse 1. The Word of God says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. There it is. In the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. A lot going on here. And as you look at Revelation 12, there's, your, your Bible probably has two different headings. And there's good and godly people who disagree about these visions and how to interpret them. But I think the most... Logical answer is you look at the flow of Revelation is to say, Revelation 12, 1 through 6 is an initial vision. And verses 7 through 17 are kind of this, another look at the same thing happening, which is meant to give us more clarity and insight as to the plot line that's like unfolding before our very eyes. And in this plot line, there's three characters. I kind of just want to point them out to us. So the first is a woman. You'll see in Revelation 12, 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. What do signs do? Anybody? They point to something, right? So this woman is not an, an actual woman. It's pointing to a greater reality. And one thing that's really sweet about us doing Revelation right now is we did Genesis in the fall. And this is a clear sign back to the book of Genesis. I just want to point out a couple different references for you. So Genesis 3, verse 15. This is in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have sinned, and now God is speaking to the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So he's speaking there to who? the serpent, about Eve, the woman. But then as you keep reading in Genesis, you keep tracking the seed, you get to Genesis 37, and there's a guy by the name of Joseph. Okay, His, his parents, Jacob and Rachel, have him. Jacob has multiple brothers. And in verse, verse 9 of chapter 37, he has this dream. 
Here's what it says. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. This is Joseph saying this. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So this sun, moon, and 12 stars is meant to be a picture of Israel. And what we know today as the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God. So though we are now Gentiles, we have been grafted into the covenant community of God by faith. It's Galatians 3. We are represented in this book, Revelation, by the woman. The covenant people of God. The second character is a great dragon. And again, you see, he's a sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. A great red dragon. And you have to be thinking... What is this dragon pointing to? What is he a picture of? And the answer is, he's a picture of the devil. We get that later in the passage. And I think there's a lot of confusion today about who the devil is. Like I see bumper stickers of like cute pictures of the devil. He is not cute, okay? And he is real. He is not abstract. If you look into Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, you will see... That the devil was initially a holy angel who then wanted to take the throne of God and he was cast out of heaven. And now he rules today. He's called the prince of the power of the air and his goal is destruction. You see that in Revelation 12. He wants to destroy the seed and what we'll eventually see is that he wants to destroy the seed's offspring. He is after the people of God. And here's how he also works. Okay, this should not be news to us. The first is he's a deceiver. Verse 9 says that he is the deceiver of the whole world. And then verse 10 says he is the the accuser. So he is the destroyer, he is the deceiver, he is the accuser. This is how the devil works. In John 8, Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. And in 1 Peter 5, we get this picture of him being like a lion looking for people to devour. This is the devil that we are up against in this cosmic spiritual battle. And I just want to say, there are people in this room who either have been deceived, are being deceived, have been accused, or are being accused. And here's what I mean by that. The enemy loves to deceive and accuse. And here's how he does it. Through brokenness. And when I think of brokenness, I think of it twofold. Sometimes it's sin that has been done to us. I think specifically of people that have walked into the doors of this church and they bring a past with them, either of abandonment or abuse, some sort of terrible conflict that just reigns in your mind and in your story, and the enemy is saying, you don't deserve love. Because of what has been done to you, you have begun to listen to the father of lies who says, this whole Christianity thing is out of your ballpark. And I just want to say, that is a lie. That is an absolute lie. But on the other side, is sin not necessarily done to us, but sin that we have chosen to participate in. And I am there with you. 
Veritas. Been following Jesus for just about 10 years, and I still occasionally, you know, hear that accusation of like, really? Could God really love you because of your past? Because of all that you have done? You really think this is for you? You really think you can be used by God as you teach on this subject? And that is a lie. That is an absolute lie. Because that's all he can do is lie. He's the father of lies. But as you look at the devil, he's powerful, right? You see this power just like personified by a dragon with horns and heads, and it almost makes us afraid. It's like, this is intense. He is out to kill. He is out to lead us astray. But I want to say this, Veritas. You do not have to fear the devil, You do not have to fear the devil. And the only reason I can say that is because there's another character in this story. He is the male child. And I want to say, he is not, it is not a sign. The male child points to a real person who we can clearly identify as the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to peel back the layer. I wish I could spend more time on this. Jesus is, from the line of Eve from the people of Israel, the promised Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent, all the way back to Genesis 3. Isaiah 30 and Psalm 2 talk about this promised Messiah who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Matthew 2, we see Jesus born to a woman and under immense persecution by Herod, flees into the wilderness of Egypt, protected by God. And we ultimately see him live as a sinless, spotless lamb of God who goes to the cross, pours out his blood for us, and rises victorious. This text, Revelation 12, is so clearly a picture of the gospel that Jesus is the victor, so we do not have to fear the devil. It's amazing. Ellie and I, about a week ago, were talking to our oldest son, Blaze. He's three years old. Keep that in mind. Okay? And... He came home from school, and we said, hey, how was school, buddy? He said, good. I was like, what would you learn about? And he said, Jesus. He didn't learn about Jesus at school, by the way. But um, he said, Jesus. We said, oh, really? What about Jesus? He died on the cross. I was like, yeah. And then what? He said, and then he rose again. Ha ha. I was like, wait, where did the ha ha come from? Like, He usually uses that to taunt his brother, like, I got a smoothie and you didn't, ha-ha. And then I thought about it, I was like, this three-year-old's taunting the devil right now. Like, Jesus rose again, ha-ha. Like, what do you have on me? Death, what do you have on me? Satan, what do you have on me? That is so biblical, Christian. If you are in Christ, that you can look the devil in the face and say, I am not afraid of you, because I am with the victor. Romans 8, great passage to hang out at if you need confidence in your faith. I love Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Any accusation that's brought against you instantly silenced by the finished work of Christ. And when you get to the end of Romans 8, really rich passage, starts by saying, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And finishes by saying, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height or depth, 
Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is what's true if you are in Christ today. You do not need to be afraid of the devil because he is defeated. That is good news. But I got to say, just because he is defeated does not mean that we can just be cocky and just be uninformed and ignorant. That doesn't make any sense. As we finish out Revelation 12, you're going to see why. I'm going to pick back up in in verse 12. It says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman. He pursued the people of God. Who had, been, who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Lots of Old Testament references here. I want to say the most clear reference is to the people of Israel, fresh out of Exodus. In Exodus 19, that he led them out like on eagles' wings, that God was the one who carried them out and one that would sustain them in the wilderness. And this is the same God, Christian, who is going to carry us through and sustain us as we await our promised land in heaven. He is for us, and he is with us, and he is going to carry us through. But here's what's true. The devil knows he's defeated and his time is short, and he's ready to wage war. And so as we get into Revelation 13, we're actually going from this cosmic heaven reality of Jesus being the victor and Satan being defeated to now seeing, when we get to Revelation 13, how the devil is going to wage war and how he is waging war. So we're going to start Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. With ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous name, names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, 
to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This passage is more famously known as the Antichrist. And I remember within my first two years of following Jesus, I got super like weird into Revelation, probably more of the afraid side of things. And I started doing all the research. And I think the problem I ran into when it came to the Antichrist was there were so many good candidates. You know, it was like, man, how do I pick just one? And that's actually kind of the point, right? The beast to us today in America, we try and identify an individual, but to John's original audience, this is a clear reference back to Daniel 7, a chapter we don't have time to unpack this morning. I would go read it this week, but John's original audience, as they were to look at Daniel 7, they would know this. The beast, which honestly looks identical to Daniel 7, is a sign of kingdoms. It's a perversion of the state. Like these earthly kings and kingdoms that are setting up their rule and are rebelling against God. And to John's original audience, they were pretty clearly making the connection. This is Rome. This is Rome of their day. And with Daniel, it was Babylon. A clear mark of a perversion of the state. But you need to see this, okay? In verse 3, it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. It's like this mimicking of Jesus. This like false resurrection that people are then captivated by and give their hope and security to. And with Rome, they experienced civil chaos when Nero died. And by the time of this text being written, they're under Domitian, and Rome is ruling and reigning again, and Christians are suffering. It's like this resurrected Roman Empire. And here's what happens. Verse 4, they worshipped the dragon. They say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? It's awful. This is, this is taking from the praise of God post-Exodus that was given from Moses to God. Who is like God and who can fight against them? They are now saying that to the beast. He is deceived. But I want to note here that any authority that this first beast has is given to him. He is under the rule and reign of God. Time and time again, Throughout these verses, it says the beast was given a mouth. He was allowed to exercise authority. He was allowed to make war, and it was given. Authority was given him over every tribe. He actually, it looks like he's in control. He is under the authority of God. And yes, all hell is breaking loose. You think about this beast leading people to worship him. And for those that will not worship him, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill you. It seems like he's winning. And I want us to see here two things. Number one, starting in verse 7, it says, It, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It's like, wait a second, Jordan. Didn't you just say that we're the conquerors? The reality is, yes, 
We are the conquerors. We already know that to be true. We just talked about it. But here's what's going to happen. If you faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of persecution, especially in this day, the way that the enemy would win over you is to kill you. It's how the enemy thought he won over Jesus too, isn't it? Take the one thing I can. Take his life. Yet Jesus' death leads to victory. So it's like, yeah, the enemy might think he's going to conquer you because you're killed. But all that's going to do is send you to heaven and lead to the explosion of the gospel. And I want to say, we as Christians, if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Christ, you do not have to worry about worshiping the Antichrist. Check this out. Verse 9, or verse 8. It says, All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's confusion about how we are saved in our culture today, and I want to make very clear to you. You did not choose God. God chose you. And that's very important because if we can choose God, we can unchoose God. But if he chose us before the foundation of the world, find that in Ephesians 1, and if we have been saved by grace through faith, not our undoing, here's the good news. Your name is in the book of life, and it's not in pencil. He's not sitting there waiting for you to screw up and turn away so that he can bring his eraser out. It is secure. So you can have confidence. Okay, if I have been saved by grace, through faith, if God chose me before the foundations of the world, I am secure in my salvation. But again, I want to say our security is not meant to lead to ignorance. Because what we're going to see next requires us to be on guard. The second beast, starting in verse 11, says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth, It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast and its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Don't worry, we'll get there. I know you're all wondering about it. Okay. This second beast completes this false trinity. Right? We follow a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now in Revelation 12, 13, you see the imitation happening. You have the devil, you have the first beast, and you have the second beast. And this second beast is now operating, as one author would call, an economic propaganda machine. His purpose is to bring worship to the first beast. And if the first beast operates in the political sphere, the unique thing is the second beast operates in the religious sphere. 
this call to say, hey, put your faith in the government. And I just want to say, this is more of a danger to us than we realize. To put our faith in an election or to think that God needs the kingdom of the United States of America to bring the kingdom of God. I just want to warn us against that. And I'm not saying don't be politically involved or engaged. I am saying your government makes a terrible savior. But there's so many things around us, and I will will say even can creep into the church that are going to make us take our eyes off of Jesus and onto an earthly power source. And this should be concerning. As we look at the tail end of Revelation 13, I just want to point out a few things to you. Verse 11, the second beast looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Kind of seems like false Christianity to me. To look like a lamb, but to speak like a dragon. To look like a church, but to teach things that are counterintuitive to Scripture. And then to see the signs of this beast where fire is literally called out of heaven. This is Elijah's party trick in First and Second Kings, right? Elijah wants to prove that he follows the real God. He's like, let me call fire out of heaven. Boom. And everyone's like, wow, there is no one like your God, Elijah. But now we see the second beast even doing things that mimic the work of God. And people are being led astray. And I got to say... This is a battle for your allegiance. For your allegiance. And with that, I mean, what are you giving your attention to? What are you giving your affections to? What are you acting on? What are you moving towards? We get so caught up in the mark of the beast being such a literal thing that we actually undervalue how deceptive the enemy is. How many of you have ever been deceived or tricked into something? Ever. Okay, there's more hands that should be up. <laughs> what comes to mind for me was sophomore year of college. I was in Fort Dodge, Iowa. You don't, don't say anything yet, okay? You can judge me before, before long. I was in the parking lot buying cologne. Yeah, you can laugh now. Okay. <clears throat> I, was in the clo- I was in the mall parking lot in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and this person has a tent set up selling cologne. And I was like, what's happening? And she's like, well, here's what you need to know. It typically retails for $49.99, but I'm a wholesale distributor, so you can have it for $20 today. I was like, shoot, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I want to smell good, and I'm balling on a budget. So she, she hands me the cologne. I can smell it. I can spray it. Looks real. Packaging looks legit. Hand her 20 bucks. I get home and open it and spray it. Literally water. And I was like, yep, I got duped. But a piece of me is kind of like, that was worth the 20 bucks. Like, she worked for that. She earned that 20. <clears throat> and I, I got to say, that is more of a picture of what deception looks like. It looks real. It feels real. Your guard comes down and you buy into a lie. And we are so foolish to think that this mark of the beast talked about in Revelation 13 is going to be a barcode tattooed on your forehead, okay? Or to think it's a vaccine, or to think that it is some literal microchip that's going to get implanted into you. 
Satan is way more deceptive than that. Way more deceptive than that. And so then the question is, what is the mark of the beast? What, how do we get a better understanding of what this means? And I think it's, it's interesting here that we get the number 666. I mean, that's been talked about for thousands of years at this point. 666. Some people would say, hey, here's what I think it is. Hebrew has this practice called uh, gematria, where you can take the Hebrew letter, turn it into a number, and make a calculation. And with that, maybe the original audience thought it was Nero Caesar. Maybe Nero is somebody who might be the beast. But it was less about identifying a person and more about what is this person like? What are their characteristics? And Nero was very anti-godly. And so they might think of Nero. I think a better way to approach this is just to consider what the number seven means in the book of Revelation. Anybody remember what number seven means? Completion. So I'm going to do some simple math for you, okay? Seven minus one is six. Okay. So is it, is it possible that this mark of the beast is actually this incomplete version of God that is competing for people's allegiance, their attention, their actions, but is built upon a false foundation and it is a failure. I think that's likely. 666, very close to 777, but incomplete. And so this, this begs the question, what's getting our attention? What's getting our affections? What are we so consumed with? Is it our investments? Is it the, the media? Is it social media? Is it Netflix? There's so many false things that are competing for our worship and can be leading us astray without us even knowing it. And I think one of my greatest concerns is less out there and is more in here. Has more to do with the church in America. And I, I came across a thread this week online in our city. It says this. I would like to start going to church with my kids. I'm like, let's go. Come on. It needs to be progressive, pro-LGBTQ, with a focus on family and community. You know, based on the actual teachings of Christ, compassion, charity, and the like. And I was like, wow. I wasn't initially shocked by the post because I kind of expect that anymore. That Christianity has been so perverted that this is a search. Here's what I was more concerned by. Number one, the amount of churches that were recommended on that thread. In our city and in the corridor. So many. People said, you can go here and hear your truth. That's concerning to me. But perhaps even more concerning than that, a couple people who hop on the thread, and they must be way more patient than me because I couldn't live on this thread more than two minutes without getting angry, okay? They decided, I'm going to be a sounding board for truth. And so they say something along the lines of, hey, that doesn't sound like a real church to me. The real church teaches the Bible, and the Bible does have something to say about this. But here's what the responses were. Oh, really? Quoting scripture? Counterattack. I'm going to quote scripture. You actually don't understand because here's what this verse really means. And one of the responses was, I never knew that. 
That was concerning to me. People that are willing to say, yeah, I think I know what's wrong, but I don't know the Bible. So as soon as you take a stand and somebody starts to quote scripture against you, you back down. Compromise was a concern for the church in Rome. In John's original audience, and it is a concern for us today, the question is, do you know the truth well enough to not compromise? Because God has given us access to this book, Veritas Church. The word of God, the unchanging word of God. And you might be tempted to say, did God really say that? Yes, he really did say it, and it's unchanging. and applies to us today. There is a need for faithfulness, a need for us to be a people in the book and of the book. And I think what concerns me is that LifeWay did a research study within recent years that said one-third of regular evangelical church attenders read their Bible personally and daily. One-third. You are going to war against this, and you do not have your sword. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. This is your one offensive weapon. In the spiritual battle, the question is, do you know it well enough to use it? I'm pleading with you, Veritas, be a people that is just so committed to the word of God that you can remain faithful to him. So, how do we face suffering in spiritual warfare? If we don't want to be afraid or we don't want to be ignorant, here's how we do it. We rejoice because the enemy is defeated. And we remain faithful because the enemy is deceitful. Both of those things are true. We can rejoice because the enemy is defeated. His time is short. He's going to try and raise hell because he's already lost. Let's worship. Come on. However, we cannot become complacent and sit on the sideline. We need the people that are in the game, in the word, living on mission with King Jesus. And so, how do we begin to apply it? I just have three invitations for you. Okay, number one. Would you be somebody that is in Christ? Meaning, would you stop trusting in yourself or trusting in lesser things to save you or to give you hope or security? Would you put your hope, your confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because he's already lived, he's already died, and he's already risen victorious. The question is, will you believe that? And if so, let's worship. We are with him in the victory. That is good news. But if you are not in Christ, I just want to say, you are in a war that you will lose. And you have a bright reason to be afraid. Second invitation, would you be in community? Would you be in community? I think it's worth noting that God not only saved us from something, he saved us to something. We are saved from our sin and from the attack of Satan, but we are saved to belong to a covenant community known as the church. You are meant to be in Christian community because you cannot follow Jesus alone. Here's what I know to be true. Lies are louder when you're alone. And sometimes the lies come from without us, outside of us, and sometimes the lies come from inside of us. And you need people in your life that can point out your blind spots and speak the truth to you in love. Are you in community? And lastly, would you be somebody that is in the word? Would you be somebody that is so committed to knowing your Bible, encountering Jesus in the word of God, 
so that when things start to push up against your comfort level, you don't run to other sources. And I'm just as guilty as this as anybody to go to Google first, to go to the news first, to go to a friend first. No, go to the Bible first. Because deception is everywhere. And sometimes it's easy for the church to sit back and, you know, poke at the LGBTQ community. But I want to say, deception is everywhere. Premarital intimacy. Did God really say that? Yes. You cannot do it. Is marriage really a covenant? And is divorce really an offense against God? Yes, it really is. Is division and gossip and slander anti-God? Yes, it is. So if we're ever in a context that is promoting, championing, or even just rationalizing sin, we need to be people that are in our Bibles and saying, what does God say? And if we can do that, Veritas, here's what's true. We live in a world that is both fearful and ignorant. It's true. A world that is fearful and ignorant. And we're looking for hope in all the wrong places, but we know it's true. And so if we would cling to the truths laid out in Revelation 12 and 13, here's what's true. We would be faith-filled, we would be courageous, and we would be faithful people to the word of God. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I just thank you for your word. It is alive, it is active, it is unchanging, And it speaks to us today in new and fresh ways. And God, I just thank you that you are the faithful one. Christ, that before the foundation of the world, you knew the names of those you would save. While we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us and you rose victorious, that we might be victorious with you. And so I speak to you now, asking for that victory to reign true in our hearts. Any accusation that's brought against us that we would cling to Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we would be confident in the victory that you have already won. But with that, God, that we would be on guard against this deceptive enemy who wants to seek, kill, and destroy. Help us to know your word, to live in your word, to encounter you and to make much of you in our city and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.